Good morning, everyone. How are you all this morning? Good? Good, I'm glad to see you all, especially as we brave what is really kind of a gross day outside, isn't it? Yesterday, I was feeling so tired, and as I was sitting there in the evening, I was like, why am I feeling so tired? I realized I hadn't seen the sun all day. And that is so depressing. I am such a Floridian. You know, I go like 12 whole hours without the sun, and I'm going, uh. Um, I'm glad we're here today to keep going with Exodus. Just a quick reminder for those of you joining us online and in person that we've got all of our old studies. If you go to stmichael.org slash rbs, you can see all of those old recordings. And if you search for Rector's Bible Study, anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find four years of recordings. And I do believe if we're not completely four years there, we're within a week of actually getting everything all the way back to Luke that we started on four years ago, loaded in the podcast. So it's very easy and accessible for you to listen wherever you are as you're moving from place to place. And so I hope that you will take advantage of that. Or if you've got a friend, I haven't said this for a while, if you've got a friend who is interested in doing a Bible study, but perhaps hasn't ever, or doesn't go to this church, we have a lot of people who watch and listen who do not go to St. Michael yet, and would love to invite them to participate with us, because I find that this is one of those very accessible kind of studies. And so do share it. Let people know that it's there. This is a resource from our church to our community, and so we'd love for you to share that as you see fit. want to also remind you that we've got just a couple more of our commentaries in the bookshop here at St. Michael, and I've been told that we've sold all but one copy of the Zora Neale Hurston book um, that she brought in, Moses, Man of the Mountain. And so if you're interested, there's one more copy left, and if not, then I believe Bub has sent that in the email. You can order it wherever you buy your books. Um, and if you do read it, let me know what you think because I find it really interesting and engaging and just fascinating the way that she tells that story. Did I reference the early Jesus stories that Anne Rice wrote too? Have I mentioned that to you all? Um, I know it kind of sounds a little strange. If you don't, if you haven't thought of Anne Rice since the eighties, um, then, you know, she was the very interesting writer who did all the vampire stuff. Um, well, she grew up going to Catholic school as a child and had sort of a reawakening of her own faith later in life and became very interested in the gaps in the gospel stories, particularly around Jesus's childhood. And so she went back and starting around, I want to say 2000-ish, maybe 2003 or so, began publishing books that in a sense told the story of Jesus's life that is left out of the Gospels, and they're fantastic. They're effectively all fiction, yes, but she tried to faithfully connect some dots of stories in the Catholic tradition and in other traditions about what Jesus may or may not have done as a child. And so the very first of these books was uh, Christ Out of Egypt, I want to say is what they called. Um, and it effectively tells the story of Jesus having fled with Joseph and Mary to Egypt to escape Herod and growing up for a few years in Egypt. And what does that sound like, right? Moses, thank you. Um, and she sort of tells the story of Jesus being this brilliant intellectual child who could speak and who could read all these languages and who could understand things in a more complex way than other children. And the way she builds the story, I kind of think, yeah, that could have happened. 
Um, it's just, it's a wonderful fictional tale of a gap of time in his life, very much like the way Zora Neale Hurston wrote about Moses, where she kind of fills in and turns the crystal and gives some character that I think is very faithful to what we see in scripture, but is not scriptural. So just keep that in your mind. It is still a fiction story, but it's a pretty good one. And so if you read it, let me know that you read it, any of those books. Today, we are going to be looking at the beginning of the plagues. So it's getting interesting. And I'm going to go a little farther than I said I would in the bookmark, not by much. We're going to end up going through the first three plagues. And once we get beyond the first two plagues, the others before the 10th kind of fly past pretty quickly. So we're going to actually go through chapter 8, verse 19 today. And we're going to have three sections of the lesson for today. The first we're going to talk about the natural plagues, the first nine plagues in general. Then we're going to look at the first three plagues from scripture. And then we're going to talk in the third section just about the way in which God is interfering with human affairs in this telling of the story and the dynamics at play that will help us understand as we go through the plagues, especially when we get to the 10th and the institution of the Passover meal and the Passover ritual as it fits with the angel of death and all of that stuff. It's going to help us to understand the political and social dynamics that God as Yahweh is impacting, interfering with Egypt and their gods. So those are our three sections today. And before we get started with that, let's have a prayer. Ah, good prayer music. There you go. Yes. Okay. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the beauty of the earth and for the rain that we expect later today that will wash us clean. We ask that you help us to open ourselves up to your spirit, to make space inside of us that you can fill us up. And that as we continue to study your word, that we can be transformed, transformed into the people that you created us to be more and more each day. And that as we do so, we become agents of your love, your peace in the world, that we extend your arms of love around all those we meet. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to start with one good question. We got multiple questions this past week. I'm going to do one now, and then one's going to kind of fit into the lesson in a little bit. The first one I found interesting, and it's, it's funny. We've had a lot of questions about the historicity of Moses, which is great. We're going to talk about that again today. And a question about circumcision and the way that it represented the covenant, because last week we talked about an idea that some scholars have put forward that perhaps Moses actually wasn't an Israelite, that Moses was Egyptian, and yet became an advocate for and a champion for the Israelites, and so really merged the communities and helped to create the Jewish identity that we know today after the exodus from Egypt. And so one of the questions we got last week was why the writers of Genesis and Exodus would have highlighted circumcision as the sign of the covenant between God and the Israelites. Then there was a follow-up question. Was this done to exclude women in a society dominated by men? So we're going to start with the idea of circumcision. So I want to reiterate something we said before, which is circumcision was not unique to the Israelites in the Near East. This was very common in the Middle East and in the Near East in the ancient world. So if you think back three, 4,000 years ago, that was something 
done in many, many cultures, including the Israelites. What is interesting, though, about the shift in circumcision around the covenant with Abraham is that circumcision became something done in infancy. Up to that point, male circumcision was actually a sign of fertility. And so it was most common that boys at puberty were circumcised and that it was really a ritual. Oh my God, can I just stop for a second? There are multiple men in the pews today and multiple of the men all went, when I said that, yes. Yep, yep, don't hide it, I saw it in your face. The women were like, yeah, and the men went, okay. In the ancient, no need to apologize, I got it. Um, so in the ancient Near East, what was really happening is, if, if you think about it, we, we often take procreation for granted. We kind of take fertility for, I don't want to say we take fertility for granted. That's not what I mean. The idea that we would have children is not perhaps as critically important to our lifestyle as it was in the past. If people choose not to have children today, okay, that's not as common as people choosing to have children, but it is a perfectly legitimate, sometimes it's a choice, sometimes it's not a choice. One way or the other, if you don't have children, life's kind of okay. Back then, thousands of years ago, if you did not have children, you were extremely insecure. Children were your security. It was social security in the ancient world. You had to have kids in order to make sure that in your old age, you were protected, you were provided for, you had a place to live. Because at some point, one cannot physically grow crops in the ground anymore. One cannot physically shepherd herds of animals. You cannot go and schlep things to the market to sell. I mean, at some point, you just can't physically do that stuff anymore. And so you have children and grandchildren, and you have as many as you possibly can because infant mortality was a problem. And so you had to have 10 kids to make sure four or five of them lived to adulthood in order to support you and on and on and on which is why we see all over the world, you can actually track fertility rates. Uh, the number of children people have tend to fall dramatically once a society reaches a point at which industry or economy becomes stable, when infant mortality uh, goes down. So somebody's phone is on, okay. Um, where when people are unable when it is more likely that your children will live to adulthood, people stop having as many kids. And that's you can see over and over and over again. So back in the day, being able to have children was beyond a lovely fulfilling of your hopes and dreams. No. Having kids was absolutely functional. You must have them. And so marking when a person could have a child Right When a man or a woman were now fertile and could procreate was a big deal. And so in the ancient Near East, male circumcision was actually one of those ritualistic moments when now a man is fertile and can bear kids, which is really the point. What happened with the covenant with Abraham is that the purpose of circumcision shifted. So it's not exactly that circumcision was now a thing to do. It had been a thing to do. But now the idea of what circumcision represents shifts. With Abraham, 
circumcision is shifted to a ritualistic moment that a male infant experiences on the eighth day of life. Why the eighth day of life? That's not random, and it has not really anything to do with, you know, creation with seven days or anything like that. In Leviticus, we see that eighth day is when animals are ready to be taken from their mothers and could be offered as sacrifices to God. So you don't need to worry about this, but in Leviticus chapter 22, we see a verse that says, when an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall stay seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as an offering by fire to the Lord. As the Israelites are forming their Jewish identity, there is this sense that we make offerings to God. We know this. That's why we give money, and that's why we give time and talent, that sort of stuff. For the Jews, offering animals, food was fine too, but offering an animal was the best way to show your fidelity to God, your faithfulness, and your covenant to God. What happens with children is that children are now marked as being offered in gratitude to God. So don't think of this as child sacrifice. That's not it. But there is a link to the idea that we offer the most valuable thing we have as a sign of our covenant and our fidelity to God. And so circumcision shifts from a mark of fertility to a mark of fidelity and our relationship to God. Why only men? I guess we just say, thank you, that's a good idea. And so, I, I don't know, men were the ones who were religious leaders. You can postulate all you want about that, but it was a male-dominated society, so that's probably really why it was that. But does it make sense that circumcision was shifted and then began to represent something that was a bit more ritualistic and holy to God, not functional around fertility? Any follow-up questions or clarity for that? Yes. Well, the eighth day, remember that many rituals within ancient religions actually have a physical benefit in the world. So, for example, why do we use silver in our ritual around communion? Well, it's not because someone thought silver was the prettiest. Because at some point, the reason we ate off silver and the reason we use silver in communion is because silver prevents the transmission of bacteria and viruses to keep us healthiest. So if you, silver is actually an antibacterial kind of uh, metal. So if you look at even today, athletes wear undergarments that have silver threads in the fabric in order to actually be antimicrobial. And so things don't smell bad or, you know, that sort of stuff. Silver is antimicrobial. And so at some point, people figured out that silver was safe. And so let's eat off of silver. We do communion off of silver. Even though today we can ourselves clean things effectively, why silver? Well, not because of some fluffy idea. It's because it literally kept you alive. And then it became ritualistic. 
And so I think eighth day circumcision, we can talk all about, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments here in a moment. We can, if we are not careful, forget the context around a lot of these practices. Many of these things were done to both represent something sacred, but to also uh, live in a particular way that is also wise. And so it's both and. It's not either or. And so just because, say, the eighth day is a medically significant day when you kind of reach viability or you're healthier or you have healed in a particular way, that's very true. And also, it began to represent this moment of meaning for the people around an offering of faithfulness to God. So all of those things are true. And almost nothing that is done is done purely for sacred representation. There's always some real world connection to why a certain thing is done in a certain way. Any other thoughts or questions? Um, before the covenant and the circumcision was a symbol of that with God, and instead it was a, a mark of fertility, there's no scientific basis that you would more likely have a child if you were circumcised than if you weren't. <laughs> so question is, prior to it be circumcision becoming a mark of the covenant, is there any evidence that being circumcised makes you more fertile or something like that? No is the answer. But interestingly, we know today circumcision is actually one of the natural ways to prevent transmission of disease. So statistically speaking, Back when HIV and AIDS was a serious global, I mean, it's still a serious problem, but when it was exploding all over the world, one of the things that we discovered in particular in Africa was certain tribes transmitted HIV less frequently than others. And one of the correlations that were discovered is if men were circumcised, they transmitted HIV less than if they were uncircumcised. And so is it possible that at some point in the past, there was a realization that being circumcised could theoretically keep you healthier longer because it de it meant that sexually transmitted diseases would affect you less often, perhaps. And so I do think that it's most like, let's just be honest, why in the world would you do that? <laughs> right? I mean, you think you're like, what is that? Let's cut it off. I mean, I don't, that kind of idea just is so strange, right? I mean, what? weird. So at some point, could there have been a moment when people realized that is a benefit? I don't even know. I find that so strange, but I think it would not have persisted had there not been some reason for people to think that there was a benefit, a, an actual tangible benefit. Now, I think over time, it could become, in a sense, um, superstitious, perhaps, where either, you know, when we are on road trips, I promise you, one of the things Nicole always does is at some point on the road trip, she'll say, it's great we haven't hit much traffic. Oh. <laughs> and I'm the person who always goes, Shh, don't say it, don't say it, you know? Um, of course, that doesn't matter at all, but I don't want you to say it. Shh. I know. 
Do not speak it out loud. Um, you know, and she's always like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, I know, but still. And so it's one of those moments where, like, do we really need to circumcise all the boys? Well, do you really want to not and then risk not having babies? I don't know. I mean, at some point you're like, why not? Because, oh, okay. That's my thoughtful answer. Why not? Any other thoughts? And just a reminder online, if you are watching with us, you can make comments or ask questions in the chat as well. And Bub is monitoring all of that. Any other thoughts? Yes. Could it be that in the ancient world, um, as societies and cultures developed, that they started finding things that were functional or utilitarian and helpful, and then they became codified in ritual? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, similar to what I just was saying, at some point... What, be, what begins as thoughtful and intentional to achieve a certain end actually just becomes a thing everyone does. And it, it's tradition. And it's sort of like, and we can look at this in so many different ways. Why do certain cultures have you do different things? Like, you know, for example, well, I don't even want to go there. You can all imagine things we do that we perceive as of as polite or respectful that if you were to actually think about them make no legitimate sense but we've simply codified them as what a polite person does or what a respectful person does or on and on and on and so you know can women not open doors well of course they can but isn't it so polite for men to open a door if they're there yes except I know I have known women in my life who are like offended if I try. And so, okay, like I know there's a physical deficiency. You can open a door, but it's just, I was, I was brought up with opening a door for someone, right? Okay. That's fine. So those are one of those things where, I mean, any women not able to open a door, of course not, but isn't it kind of nice? So why in the world did that start? Who knows? I would venture a guess that Poor women used to have to dress and wear ridiculous, dumb things. Do you know, you watch those period pieces, and women, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I, you know, the boning and the whatever and all that stuff that women had to wear at some point. I bet at some point in the past, probably in England, women had to wear such ridiculous crap that they couldn't actually reach the door, right? <laughs> so, doesn't that make sense? Right? You had so much on your butt and so much out in front of you that, like, you physically couldn't, you couldn't reach it. And so men actually had to open the door so women could get through the door or else they'd be stuck outside all day. And so once people took to their senses and started wearing real nice clothes that don't hinder you from moving in the world, opening doors was still something that gentlemen did. And then fast forward to now and, you know, not functional, but it's nice. That is, in a sense, the way that all of these things come to be. And so all of these ideas in scripture are likely not begun in that moment, but have context. I actually find it kind of beautiful in its own way that what had been, in a sense, I hate to, say, I hate to use the word pagan, but the shorthand of this is not sacred in any way, becomes sacred. In the same way that, I mean, what are Christmas trees? 
That, that's not Christian, y'all. There's nothing about Jesus did not have a Christmas tree. But at some point, these non-sacred representations of seasonality became linked with what is a Christian holiday. And so now we use them to represent something sacred. It's totally fine. And I think in a sense, it's kind of beautiful. We take things that are only worldly and we make them holy. And I think that's a beautiful thing for people of faith to do. Okay, enough about circumcision. Let's move on. Although I will note, you were most engaged about that than really anything else this year so far. No judgment, just saying. All right, section number one. We're going to talk about the nine natural plagues. And so before we actually read from the Bible, I want to just take a couple minutes to talk about the plagues in general, because I expect that you will, if you haven't already, you will begin to wonder, did this actually happen? Did these plagues actually happen the way that they are? I think you can think of the plague stories in Exodus in at least three specific macro ways. You can begin by thinking that they were literal. So literally, the Nile turned to blood. Literally, frogs jumped everywhere and killed people, that there were blisters and boils, that literally all of the firstborn died. That's okay. That is what the story says. And so to look at this literally, I don't really think is problematic most of the time. With the exception that, and we've noted this already, God sets up Pharaoh to resist Moses and Pharaoh's resistance is what ultimately causes the kill innocence. If you take the story literally, I think you have to wrestle with that God is ultimately the reason why people suffer in this story. That's a problem. It's a problem for me because I think the God that now. I think there are plenty of people who would say, that's right, God, get him. The God we see in the person of Jesus isn't this God. If you think of God in the way that many Christians portray God, perhaps this makes sense. There is no way you could put Jesus in God's place and think Jesus would do this. And so as Christian people, we necessarily understand God as being God in three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if we can pretty easily say God the Son, Jesus, would not act this way, I think it's necessary for us to then say, would God the Father act this way? And if you think God the Father would act this way, but not God the Son, what then is God? Confused? or who knows, unpredictable, mean. There's a problem with the literal telling of this story because Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response is to turn Moses down because why? God is hardening his heart. So God's causing a problem that then God will solve by killing innocent people. Mm, that's, that's a problem. Okay, literal. I would argue is not the best. Second, 
you could read these plagues as figurative. If we think that these are figurative or metaphorical, then eh, I think that's probably okay. But it's difficult to pick and choose what in Scripture is metaphorical and what is actual. So if the plagues become metaphorical, like the river didn't really turn to blood, but it got muddy or something like that. Or if the frogs didn't really come out in a big number, but they were sort of annoying, then eh, I think that's a problem because then you fast forward and then was Jesus's resurrection only metaphorical and not literal? I think that then becomes a problem. And we can't on our own pick and choose what is and is not metaphorical or literal in scripture. So the third option here with the plagues is the one that I tend to land on, very similar to the idea of circumcision, is real stuff happened. And that real stuff became like a big fish story. And so real stuff happened in some real way. And over the centuries, that fish got this big. And the way that it was, the story was ultimately told became fantastic and dramatic and global and huge, but was actually rooted in real literal things that happened that were bad news for Egypt. Why I think this works is because we've got essentially ways to explain pretty much all of these plagues as natural phenomena, but in small bits. So could frogs have overwhelmed the entire nation of Egypt? No. But could frogs have overwhelmed one small section of the Nile at some point? Sure they could. Same with gnats, same with locusts, same with darkness. I mean, we just, what, was it two years ago we had the full solar eclipse here? I mean, is that possible? Sure it is. Not global, but local. That kind of stuff is very possible. And one thing to keep in mind, consistently throughout the plague stories, something bad happens to Egypt and it does not happen to the Israelites, right? That's kind of the point. And so you've got the angel of death moment where it happens to the Egyptians, it doesn't happen to the Israelites. Why is there this constant, it happened to them but not to them? One thing to remember is that physically, the Israelites are very far away from the Egyptians. These people were not living on two sides of the street. They were living in very different areas. They could effectively have been miles and miles and miles away from each other, even dozens or hundreds of miles from wherever Pharaoh could have been at the time because they were out there building stuff. And Pharaoh was living here in places already built. And so if you think about weather weirdness that happens in Dallas but not Fort Worth, it kind of explains what could be happening here as being natural phenomena that is very local and specific that over the course of centuries is expanded to become this very dramatic story. So that's essentially where I land in the plagues. Did they really happen? Some version of them I think actually happened. Was it literally the way the story is told here? I do not think so. But it's still true. And the truth is what I want to kind of pull away 
the specifics of the story to get to what I think is most true. That is the idea that I want to start with today before we get into just reading what is, to be honest, a pretty excellent story. But we're going to read the whole thing because it's just is great. Any thoughts or questions about that? So are you saying Moses did not raise up his right hand with the spirit and make all this happen? Question is, am I saying Moses didn't raise up his right hand and make all this happen? I think that we have to be careful to not take a story at face value that has been oral tradition just by virtue of we've all played the telephone game and we know how telling and retelling and retelling and retelling a story over time changes the story. So I think just human nature is such that we cannot literally take these stories as they are. Now, hold that intention with, I think that the stories can be a little too much magic if we're not careful. And I don't see God as a magician. And so we can, if we're not careful, make Moses into either a superhero or it's, you know, Gandalf and Lord of the Rings or it's whatever it is. Like we conflate these ideas too much with what looks like a big tall person with a pointy hat and a robe and a stick. And I do think Moses led the people. I do think Moses, and I've said, I, I know I've said this kind of roundabout in ways. I, I think Moses was a real person. Um, I think it's, I want you to know historic evidence to, you know, pro con of that idea. I think he was real. And so I think in some capacity, Moses led people with a stick. I mean, that's normal, right? I mean, you're going to go walk into the wilderness. And today, gosh, I saw the funniest meme the other day um, where someone, it was actually someone who commented on Twitter where they said, um, hey, guy with a camelback backpack, two walking sticks, boots, and a Patagonia vest. My five-year-old just walked that path with Crocs and her doll, her naked baby doll. So, you know, you see like when you go out walking and hiking, people who are like so decked out, they've got their sticks and they've got their stuff. You know, they just went to REI and spent $500 so they could walk up that hill, you know, sort of thing. I do think that Moses would have gone out in the wilderness with a stick. Sure. And so as he's speaking to the people, would he have been elevated above them when he talks? Sure. That just makes total sense. It's the same reason why we have a pulpit. It's not to be better than, it's to just be seen. And so could all of those very real things have happened and then over time been exaggerated a bit to puff Moses up or even more well intended to puff God up? Sure. I want to back away from the literal actions being true and get more at the heart of the story that I think is true. Does that make sense? So we'll talk, we gotta go with, we're gonna cross the Red Sea at some point, right? And so we're gonna talk about what in the world was that because it's not Cecil B. DeMille crossing the Red Sea. I mean, that because we have to try to make these things not seem like movie special effects. 
and instead get at what is real about them because I think what is real about them is really the best part of the whole story. Yeah. To do all that. It's Aaron who is doing this thing, who's doing all of these plagues. Yes. And that he is Moses' big brother. Yes. Do you have a... We don't seem to talk about Aaron. Yeah. Okay, so the comment is we hear, when we talk about these stories, we really talk about Moses, but much of the action of the doing is Aaron. You are right, but if you look at the arc of the story, the emphasis of the relationship is between God and Moses. Ultimately, Moses represents the way in which the Jewish people will relate to God. And so Aaron does play a part for sure. Aaron, in some traditions, Aaron becomes the first priest. And so in that sense, Aaron is a tool of God's. What is interesting about, which is why I recommended the Zora Neale Hurston book to you, Moses is very oddly, almost as if he himself is God on earth, directing things to happen. Now, the way the story is told at the beginning especially is that Moses doesn't want to do it and he's not a good speaker and he's afraid and he doesn't want to go and all that stuff. But the transition that's going to happen when we get to Sinai and him receiving the commandments is essentially almost as if Moses becomes godlike in his capacity, right? His face glows and his hair is blown back and all. He really takes on this otherworldly, almost superhuman identity. Whereas Aaron, Miriam, and the others, Joshua and beyond, they remain very human. Their function remains at the very human level. We watch Aaron in this story, and we think, actually, we could do that, right? Could we be told what to say and then go say the thing? Sure. Could we be told what to do and then do that thing? Yes. Moses, though, is almost this intermediary in a way that is beyond normal. It is abnormal, superhuman in a sense, which is why I think theologically speaking, Moses is really the focus of the, the way the story is told rather than Aaron. Aaron is a good player, but in the character study that I want us to focus on during this school year, Moses just carries more weight. Good. Good, good. So Pharaoh's magicians kind of track Moses and Aaron tit for tat, right? They turn their staff into a snake. Well, the magicians turn their staffs into a snake. Now Moses' staff ate their snakes, but still they're able to do some of that stuff. Well, the reason we're going through the first three plagues today is because that doesn't last very long. And by the time we get to the third plague, they cannot keep up anymore. And so we're going to get there. It's a good observation. We're going to get there just a few verses after the second plague. So let's jump in with... Oh, you know what? One more thing. I know. Talk too much. 
We did get another question that I thought was important for today around the historicity of the Ten Commandments. Um, the question was, and I'll just do this in like 45 seconds. If there is no historic evidence of Moses that we have yet discovered, what about the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments? Did those exist? Where did they go? Do we know? And the answer is no, we don't know. Um, they were put in the Ark of the Covenant that was built at Mount Sinai. We're going to get there in a couple months. Um, but when we build the Ark and put the tablets in the Ark, the Ark is then carried around. And wherever the Ark goes, that is God being present on earth. And so in the wilderness, which we will cover this year, as the people moved, they would put the Ark in a tent that would become the Holy of Holies. There would be a pillar of light that would go between heaven and earth and God would be present there. And when that pillar would go, they would move again. Fast forward, as Joshua goes into the promised land, they carry the ark in front of them because the ark is representative of God and God's power to move the people into the promised land. Over the generations, it gets stolen by some people and relocated to certain places and whatever. And next year, we're going to see that David is the one who finally brings the ark with the tablets into Jerusalem, into the temple that Solomon builds. Then where does it go? Really, we don't know, but my favorite tradition about where it went is that when Babylon sacked Jerusalem just before the exile, it was carried away to Ethiopia to be kept safe. And what is interesting about that is we might say, why Ethiopia? Ethiopia has one of the oldest Jewish populations in the world. And for over a thousand years, there were Ethiopian Jews who then became Christian. And so Ethiopia is one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. Ethiopian Christians actually very commonly keep Jewish kosher eating laws because of their Jewish history. And when we look at Acts of the Apostles, who's the first non-Israelite to be baptized? It's the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not a coincidence that that eunuch is Ethiopian. Why is the Ethiopian there reading the Isaiah scroll? Well, because they were probably Jewish and they had come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage and he was headed home. And then he ran into Philip and got baptized and Philip disappeared and all that good story. Ethiopia plays a very important role. So there is a sect of Ethiopian Christians who say they protect the Ark of the Covenant in hiding in the highlands of Ethiopia today. I love that story. It's probably not there, but that's fine. Um, okay, let's jump in. So chapter 7, verse 14. We're going to read this fast because now we're just in the good stuff. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the riverbank to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. 
The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, and its ponds, and all its pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river. And all the water in the river was turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water. And there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So we'll pause there. First plague, blood in the water. This water turned to blood was... As the story says, totally universal. It's not just the water in the Nile. It's not just the water in the tributaries of the canals or the lakes. It's all the water in the vessels people had collected. So in the stone basins and in the wooden troughs, all the water turned to blood. We mostly don't think about the value of water. We turn things and water just appears and it's clean and we can drink it. That's very rarely ever been the case throughout all of human history. Water is absolutely critical. And in ancient cultures, water was protected to the death because without water, you couldn't have a society that flourished. You couldn't support lots of babies. You couldn't support crops to feed the people or animals to feed the people and on and on. Egyptians, by many measures, flourished in the ancient world because of the Nile. It was one of the largest freshwater bodies available in the ancient world. And so they were able to flood plains to grow crops. They were able to drink what they needed, bathe, uh, water their cattle and oxen and you name it. For the Egyptians, the Nile was their life. For many other cultures, they had to rely on the rain. And so Israelites and others would have to collect rainwater or find an oasis, right? Remember where Moses went, he married Zipporah and met Jethro's family and all that stuff around an oasis, around a well. People had to have water to live. And the Egyptians' water supply was just phenomenal. And so it's the first plague to strike Egypt is right at the heart of their entire social order their fresh water. And so it totally decimates all of the population. They could not drink. They could not water their cattle. They could not grow their crops. And yet Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. All right. Any questions about that before we keep going? All right, here we go. Chapter eight. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The river shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your palace, into your bedchamber and your bed, and into the houses of your officials and of your people, and into the ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your officials. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, and the pools, and make frogs come upon the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and brought frogs up on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and for your officials and for your people, that the frogs may be removed from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, As you say. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, the frogs shall leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses requested. The frogs died in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. We see that Pharaoh with the second plague is beginning to crack just a little, beginning to get annoyed enough to where he promises to let the people not go, but to let them go and worship. Remember at the very beginning, when Pharaoh heard Moses' first request, Moses wanted the people to be able to go out and worship God, not leave Egypt, But to be able to go away, and we talked about how slaves don't get vacation, right? You don't get to just go on a trip. And so Pharaoh said no. Now we're back to not just let my people go, period, but let the people go and worship. And so Pharaoh said, ah, okay, when tomorrow? And so Moses prays, and here's where I think it's very interesting. If you look at verse 12, Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh, and the Lord did as Moses requested. That is a very interesting way to tell this story. God responded to Moses' request. Moses is now transitioning from being a person that God is compelling to do things into a person that is making asks of God. And God is now responding to Moses. Moses is, in a sense, behind the wheel here and God will come back behind the wheel and they'll start to trade back and forth. But we're seeing the beginnings of a lean into Moses becoming more God-like in his control of the world. Going to God and saying, hey, God, do this. And God does what Moses asks. It's very interesting. All right. A little bit more. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and gnats came on humans and animals alike. All the dust of the earth turned into gnats throughout the whole land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. There were gnats on both humans and animals. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Once more, a plague hits. This third plague of gnats hits. And we see for the first time, Pharaoh's magicians can no longer keep up with the impact that God, through Moses and Aaron, is having in the world. That's a very important turn. Because remember, they could do the snake bit, They could do the water into blood. They could do the frogs. They cannot figure out how to do the gnats. And so now we're going to flip for the last few minutes into the third section of today's study, which is God's interference with Egypt. There really is this sense 
that you've got God versus God. And we've talked about that before. We've got this sense that Yahweh is one God, Egypt has its own gods, and there is a divine battle happening that is then working itself out on the earth. Up to this point, it's been a sort of tit for tat, God for God. Yahweh does a thing, Egypt's gods do, do a thing, back and forth and back and forth. But now with the advent of the gnats, the third plague, Egypt's magicians, or in other words, Egypt's gods, can't seem to keep up with Yahweh. It seems like an odd thing to me, just, and maybe it's because I grew up in Florida, but gnats don't seem so tragic as like all the water turning to blood. And so it seems like they should be able to do the gnats thing, but not the blood thing, but whatever. So I also think it's very funny that Pharaoh's magicians seem to be exacerbating the problem. Right? Doesn't it make more sense that if Moses turned his staff into a snake, they would turn their staff into like a mongoose to kill the snake, right? Or if Moses turns the water into blood, they would turn what? The blood back to water. Why are they turning more water into blood? And Moses brings up frogs out of the Nile. And so instead of getting rid of the frogs, they bring up frogs out of the Nile too. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Because you're just making the problem worse. But the point of the story is a little less than makes sense. And a little more that, God versus God, now Yahweh is pulling ahead. The Egyptian gods cannot keep up. Yahweh is now the king god here, doing things that the Egyptian gods cannot keep up with. And we even see the magicians articulate that very idea when they say, this is the finger of God. So now the magicians cannot keep up, and they articulate the theological point the storyteller is trying to make. Did the Egyptians actually say that? Did the magicians say that to Pharaoh? Probably not, because you know what happened to those magicians? They would have been killed. So I guarantee the magicians had a very good excuse, and they ran away for a while because they couldn't keep up with this. But the storyteller is telling a specific kind of story. The magicians articulate the deep point that they're trying to make as the magicians are unable to perform a certain task. Now Yahweh is in control. Moses has gotten to a point where Pharaoh is now going to start to see that he's going to lose this war. But Pharaoh is going to resist. His heart will remain hardened for many more cycles of plagues before he finally is broken. And that's the end of today's lesson. So we've got more plagues next week. We should get through the next set of plagues. And then we're getting close to the big time, the Passover. Have a great week, you guys. See you next week.